This is In-House Insiders, a podcast from the Association of Corporate Counsel, where you'll hear from the most interesting in-house legal professionals in Australia. On the show, we'll explore their stories, the challenges they've faced along the way, and the lessons they've learned that have defined their careers. I'm your host, May Ramsey, and I'm the Group Executive Legal Governance and Regulatory Affairs at Medibank. In today's episode, we're speaking to Anthony Manillo, who is the Senior Manager of Legal Services at MIGA. Anthony's a really passionate person. His career transitioned into an in-house role when he found himself, like so many other lawyers, disillusioned with the timesheet. Anthony has been successful in this role, but his world was turned upside down when he was diagnosed with MS. We talk about the moment he decided to transition into an in-house role from private practice, how it felt to be diagnosed with MS, and how he's overcome his diagnosis. All right, let's dive in. Welcome, Anthony, to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I thought we might start with just a little bit about your career up until now and how you got to where you are now. The story is essentially I came out of high school, if we go back to high school, not not really knowing what I wanted to do once I left high school. I knew I wanted to study further at university and back when I studied law, you couldn't get into law from as a school leaver. So I had to do an arts degree or science degree. I chose science. I loved science. I loved anatomy and started a science degree. Then I transferred into law. Then like a lot of law students, I struggled to find that first job. Too many law students, even back then, too many law students for not enough jobs. And I didn't know too many people in the law, but I did know someone that gave me a foot in the door to get an interview for a summer clerkship. Summer clerkship at a place called Warman's Lawyers. Uh, which is a mid-tier firm in Adelaide, and did a clerkship. And I was really lucky that just after I finished my clerkship, I was working in the medical negligence department in the in the firm, and they were about to start a, a three-month intensive trial, and they needed a junior to to do some of the legwork. So they asked me to stay on, and stayed on for another five years working in the medical negligence team, and then I moved uh, in house after that. Had a bit of a disillusionment, I think is the word, with the law and was looking at other options completely outside of the law and fell into this role uh, where I am now and have been for the last uh, 17 years at MIGA. So you mentioned there, Anthony, about you you had a, a bit of a crisis when you moved in-house. Can you maybe take us through, you know, what was going through your mind at that time? It was about five years in that I started to think I didn't want to be a partner in, in a law firm. It wasn't particularly Warman's. Warman's was a great place to work. I just thought I didn't like timesheets. I didn't like billable hours. That really grated on me. And I thought I'd spoken to a, a partner in Warman's who was moving on. And he, in no uncertain terms, felt that even at partner level, he was still a slave to the timesheet. And I didn't want that to be me. And I spoke to a few uh, of my senior colleagues, friends that I had come to know in my five years. And it was funny in a way because each of them, and they were quite senior, uh, one was a barrister, one was a partner in another law firm, each of them had said that they had all come to that same crossroads that 
around the same time of their Lord career. And they decided, they said, you've got to make a choice whether you're going to continue on this path uh, or you do something else. And for me, it was doing something else. And I didn't know what that something else was at that point. And then during the course of one of our trials, I was talking to our client, who is my current boss at MIGA, and I was having a coffee with her and I was having this very conversation to say, look, I'm just not sure I want to be a lawyer anymore and and I'm thinking of moving on and doing something else. And I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. And she said to me, look, I'm, I'm flat out and I need some help. So while you're deciding on what you want to do, why don't you come and help me at MIGA? It was called MDASA back then. It was a medical defence organisation that provided discretionary cover for medical practitioners in South Australia at that time. And so I moved on to uh, MDASA, which is now MIGA, and my plan was to be there maybe three to five years and then I'll work on an exit plan from there. And almost 17 years later, I'm still there and thoroughly enjoying the in-house role that I've been doing. What an amazing story and what, as you say, crossroads if you hadn't had that coffee with your now boss and frankly had the you know courage to talk about how you were feeling, then obviously you may not be where you are today. I think it's really important that when I spoke to colleagues, they had all gone through exactly the same crisis point. Now, not everyone goes through that, but there's a lot of people that do. And I thought I was the only one. I thought I was, you know, there was something wrong with me that I didn't enjoy the law and so it was, uh, yeah, it was very worthwhile speaking to someone. Absolutely. And just on a personal note, I actually went through exactly the same crisis in inverted commas around the same time, sort of, as you said, five or six years out in private practice and having that reflection of, is this what I want to do? Mm. But I yeah, think the fact that you opened up and spoke to people was, as you said, you know, it was so beneficial because you realised you weren't alone. You moved into this in-house role, as you say, just on a temporary basis and 17 years later you're still there. So what made you stay? What made you decide to continue in that in-house role? That's a really good question, mate. I think it was, I think there's two parts of that, my decision to stay. Firstly, the organisation is a wonderful organisation, MIGA, but the culture is like a family and secondly, the nature of the work. Uh, the nature of the work that I get to do on a day-to-day basis is help the medical profession, help medical practitioners principally, but also medical practices and helping them at their lowest points in their medical career when people have made complaints against them, people have sued them. And I get to practice uh, a whole range of law from negligence, civil law, criminal law, doctors being charged with criminal offences, administrative law, procedural fairness, natural justice, uh, and really, you know, solution-based. I'm not guided by a timesheet or billable hours. I'm just guided by how long it takes to help a client, the doctor, through a a difficult situation. Uh, And it's very, very rewarding to come at the other end of that and have a doctor that is so grateful for the assistance and guidance. And the outcome might not be a, a terrific outcome. They might have a suspension with the Medical Board of Australia, but they felt supported throughout the process, and I think that's that's really rewarding, and that's that's been a big part of uh, keeping me in, the, in 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 this role as well. Oh, I can hear the 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 passion in your voice, Anthony, and it's just fantastic because you've found obviously an organisation which is 
totally aligned with your values and you're doing really meaningful work. You know, that I think is where, you know, all in-house lawyers are trying to find that special place. Have you got any advice for in-house lawyers who may be seeking to find uh, somewhere that really fits them? And if they're not in a place that maybe doesn't resonate as strongly what they should be thinking about? Yeah, I think that's that's first and foremost. I, I'm in a place which fits my personality, you know, the, the type of environment that I want to be in and, and working in and that helps me thrive in my job, helps me thrive as a as a mentor and a supervisor and as a manager. And I think it's easy to say, you know, if you don't if you don't like where you are, then you know, you've got to look at other options and moving on. And I you know, that's the reality. I think you need to have the courage to confront that if you're if anyone is unhappy in their workplace, no matter what their role is then you, you need to be considering other options. Easier said than done. You know, the market out there is not not great for, for lawyers, particularly in-house roles. They're really, really hard to come by. But, you know, they are out there. They're absolutely, they're out there. And But I think it's also, you know, part of your responsibility, my responsibility to create that culture. And it might not be company-wide, but within my team I can create that sort of culture. And we certainly have that culture in, in our legal team, which is, about 14 lawyers in Adelaide and, and Sydney. Uh, and we definitely have that sort of culture where that very collegiate, supportive and very open, which makes it a great place to work. Thanks, Anthony. I, I might move our discussion now to something a bit more personal to you. You spoke about the fact that you love your work and the fact that you're helping people through incredibly challenging times, but you've had your own personal challenges uh, which I understand you're happy to talk about. You've been quite open about the fact that you have been diagnosed with MS. Maybe before we explore that, could you explain to us what is MS? So MS, uh, I, I should start by, it's only probably in the last three or four years that I've been open about my health and, and my health issues. I'm, I'm generally a very private person, but mainly through the encouragement of my wife, I it tells me that you know I have a story to tell, and I should be telling it that uh, I'm doing things like uh, this uh, this interview. And so MS uh, MS is a autoimmune disease that essentially the body attacks itself, and with MS the immune system attacks the nerve uh, nerve fibres, principally in the brain, but also in the spinal cord, uh, and uh, uh, destroys nerve fibres and, and therefore interferes with the nerve singles, signals going to all different parts of the body. And it can affect people in different ways. So um, depending on where the lesions are in your brain or spinal cord, it can affect movement, mobility, eyesight, brain function. For me, I in 2008, at the start of 2008, I started developing some vision problems in my left eye, which I didn't know was MS or part of MS. At the time, I, I just thought something was going on. I went to the ophthalmologist and they ruled out, they said I had, some, I had some inflammation in my optic nerve and that it should resolve. And it did resolve after a, a month or so. And then I started developing pins and needles in my the lower half of my body. So from the time I woke up until the time I fell asleep, it was constant pins and needles from the toes to my trunk. And uh, that lasted for about six months, 
and I, I knew something wasn't right and I was very anti-doctors at that point, not in terms of just being afraid to go to the doctors. They always tell you something something's wrong. Um, and I thought I had a tumour on my spine. That's what it, That was my self-diagnosis on Google. My wife made an appointment for me to go to the doctor and my GP was wonderful at the time and arranged a CT scan, which didn't show anything, certainly didn't show a tumour, which was great, but we needed an explanation for my symptoms. And he said, look, I think you should have an MRI and I think you should have it today. And I uh, I said, look, um, what do you think it is? And he went through a whole list of possible diagnosis and, and right at the bottom of the list was MS. And MS scared me uh, a lot. It was one the one diagnosis that I didn't want. I had a close relative that I had watched deteriorate physically from a very vibrant person, very energetic person to someone bedbound um, and scared the living daylights out of me. And I, I didn't want to have, uh, didn't want to be that person. And then a range of tests, MRI, number of other tests followed and my, I had an appointment with a neurologist and he sat me down and he said, Anthony, you've got MS. And that was two days before my 34th birthday in July and um, just shook my world, you know, brought me crashing down and um, still even to this day, 13 years later, it's still difficult to remember. I remember very clearly those, those, those events and that time, still very difficult to talk about it. I'm in a much better place than what I was at that point, so I can talk about it, but I really thought, you know, my life was over at that point you know, life as I knew it. And I had two young children, a four and a two-year-old, a wife, a family to support. So all those things, thoughts came flooding to my mind about not being able to support them, being reliant on them. And uh, that was a very difficult time for me. Thank you for sharing that, Anthony, because as you said, I can, can only imagine how difficult that diagnosis would have been to hear for you and your family at the time. And even t- to this day, obviously, you need reliving that could be quite challenging. When you think back to those early days, as you said, you had so many thoughts going through your head at the time. How did you work through how you were going to manage and respond to it? And how did it, for instance, affect your work? Well, it affected every part of my life. I, I think it was about eight or nine months that I was in quite a deep depression and it affected my family life. It affected my work life. I continued working, which in hindsight, physically I was able to work. There was no issue about that. But mentally I wasn't there. And in hindsight, I should have taken some time off just to process things. I tried to battle through it. I'm sure my work was affected in, in a number of ways. Uh, as I said, I was quite private. I didn't tell anyone at work because I just didn't want to be judged. I was quite ashamed of my diagnosis. It was, it was something that the last thing I wanted and I didn't want to talk to anyone. And then I did disclose it to my, my boss at the time who was wonderful, extremely wonderful support. And she, she suggested having some time off. Um, I didn't want to have time off, but what I did do was I reduced my hours. I cut back a day, a fortnight. So I work it and I still work a nine day fortnight. I also engaged for the first time in my life professional help with a psychologist and 
I think for men in particular, that's something that we feel as men that we don't need that sort of professional help, but it was life-saving for me. And to talk to someone completely independent, uh, unbiased, uh, and just get some thoughts on managing some difficult emotions that I was going through uh, was extremely helpful. And through that, I was able to get to a point where I started digging myself out of the hole. And then I stumbled across a medical practitioner by the name of Professor George Jelinek, and he has MS as well. And he researched MS and lifestyle factors that uh, could assist in slowing the progression of MS because there's no cure for MS, which is unfortunate. I think we're very close now, but at that time we were far away from a cure. But Professor Jenelik had done a lot of research into it and I stumbled across his work, the Overcoming Multiple Sclerosis Program. He wrote a book, which I read, and that started giving me hope. And I and I really latched on to those, um, that hope and, uh, and, and as I said, digging myself out of out of a pretty deep hole at that point. So you've been through some pretty dark times, understandably so. The way you talk about it now, you sound so strong and so positive. And I know that you believe that resilience is a skill that can be learned. Can you talk me through what this means to you? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think the person I am now compared to what I was 13 years ago is, is someone very different and, to use your word, uh, stronger, stronger certainly in, in mind. And I think uh, resilience is a big part of that. And what I've learned through my own experience is that resilience is something that can be harnessed. It is a skill we're all born with. Over the course of our life, we either harness that skill or we learn to suppress it through our life circumstances. I had a, a, a very wonderful upbringing and you know, encouraging parents, encouraging teachers, but there were some parts of my uh, upbringing that made me suppress my level of resilience. And, and then through the MS diagnosis, when I was at my lowest point, I almost got to the point of giving up and, and giving up to the point where ending my life was a, an option that I had um, considered. Life in a wheelchair, life in a bed was not an option that I wanted to explore or think about and, and ending my life was a way out. And I'm glad I didn't take that any further and, and that was through professional help and, and support of family and friends that I got through that. But once I got on to particularly the OMS program, and learned some skills through that, that helped me build my resilience. And that is over the years, over 13 years, I have learned to build that skill of resilience. And it's something I keep working on. And I think it's something that we all can build on and we all can learn and we all can make that, I, I call it a muscle, the resilience muscle, much stronger. And is that program that you just referred to, Anthony, the program that Professor Jelinek had developed that you spoke about earlier? Yeah, so he, being a medical practitioner, he had access to a lot of medical literature and he, he dived into the literature and say, what is there about lifestyle factors that maybe bring on MS and also affect this progression? And long story short, he, he developed this program of diet, principally a low saturated fat diet, 
stress management, mindfulness, vitamin D exposure, so being out in the sun, and developed this program which he had written on a piece of paper and stuck on his fridge that reminded him when he was diagnosed, these are the things I need to commit to. And then thankfully he decided that that was something he needed to spread more broadly and he wrote a book and developed a website. He also runs retreats in the Yarra Valley in Victoria in COVID environment. There, there's there's a bit of a, a halt on that at the moment, but my wife and I attended that retreat in, in 2009. And so that was de- dedicated, it was a week-long retreat dedicated to MS and the OMS program. And so there was obviously a lot of people with MS there, and that was something that I was afraid of meeting. I didn't want to meet people with MS, particularly those with disability, because I didn't want to associate myself with them. And it's, it feels horrible that me saying that now, but that was the truth. And, you know, when we first got there, there were people that were bed-bound, lying on a bed. There were people in walking frames, people like me that visibly you couldn't really tell that we had uh, MS or didn't have any uh, outwardly uh, visible symptoms. But over the course of, even over the course of those five days where we immersed ourselves in the program, I was so inspired by the people that were there, the people with MS, the people with disability, just having the resilience to commit to doing whatever they whatever they could to make them feel better, to slow the progression of their disease. And I remember doing exercise. We did a form of Chinese yoga called, or it's almost like Tai Chi, but it's called uh, Qigong. And this lady, you know, she was struggling with her balance and she fell over a number of times, but she kept getting up, kept doing it. And it was it was so inspiring. And I left that retreat absolutely committed to doing whatever it was whatever was necessary to keep myself well and you know 13 years later I'm absolutely symptom free of MS and on MRIs I had lesions in my 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 brain and spine the lesions in my spine have disappeared the lesions in my brain are absolutely dormant so they're completely inactive and I hope that's the way I'm going to stay for the rest of my uh, life. I hope I, I die of old age and and not anything associated with MS. So that's the point I've I've got to. And um, uh, I am inspired by people that are battling in a number of ways, but then keep keep battling on and moving on and keep moving forward and making health their priority as I have now. That's wonderful to hear, Anthony. That you're now symptom free and you know an amazing turnaround. And as you say, you know, particularly at that retreat where you met lots of other people with MS, it sounds to me that the that you know those individuals were showing amazing resilience. Is it going back to your theory that resilience is a skill? Is this something that you think in-house lawyers should be interested in developing? Absolutely, I think I think it applies to everyone. You know, people in law, in-house law, any job, we all have setbacks large or small some are significant and you know in any job in an in-house role you know particularly in the last 12 months we've seen what what our world can be turned to where we're in lockdown and you know you can't leave the house and people have lost their jobs you know if you don't have that skill of resilience it is very easy to spiral into a depression that you don't feel you can have a way out and uh, I think if, if you learn that skill of resilience or if you have that resilience and build on it then you're in a much better place to deal with whatever setbacks come your way. And 
you know, I for one, I know, you know, there'll be setbacks ahead of me. I, I know that, you know, health-wise in family, you know, losing a loved one, you know, those are setbacks that we everyone faces. And I feel that I will have the mental fortitude to be able to deal with it, whatever comes my way. And I think as in-house lawyers, we all need to develop that skill because, you know, there's not always, it's not always roses and sunshine in our workplace. There's difficult times, there's there's setbacks, there's challenges, you know, company decisions that you may not agree with or go against you. You know, all that requires resilience to be able to deal with and overcome. I, I totally agree. And Anthony, what advice would you give in-house lawyers on how they can develop or improve their resilience? That's, a, that's another good question, May. I, um, I think through my experience and what I did, that's all I can pass on, that I got to a point where principally and vitally surrounding yourself with positive people, you know, having the people that support you, that to that bring you up rather than bring you down, those negative people, we all have them in our life. Some are really close to us, some are family members. And what I did was I, you know, where I could uh, eliminate the negative people in my life, I did that. You know, family members, you can't always, you can't do that, but you minimise your exposure and maximise your exposure to the positive people around you. So that was a really important part for me. Also, I pretty quickly, once I got onto the OMS program, I worked out what I needed to do and then I just got busy doing it. That's what I, you know, you work out what you need to do. You, you have a setback then you process that. There is that grieving process. Whatever that setback is, there is a bit of a grieving process. And mine was eight months worth of grieving. And then I worked out, well, this is what I need to do to, to be well, and I got busy doing it. And I think that's that's another key part of getting through some setbacks is, okay, well, what is the setback? What can I learn from it? What do I need to do to, to get past this? And then get on with it and have the support around you. And that also involves seeking professional support when you need to. You know, most workplaces these days have the EAP, the Employee Assistance Program, which is a wonderful program, I think, that allows employees to access support outside of the organisation for their work issues and personal issues. And I think that's been, that's been great. And I've utilised that service myself. And then I think a big part of building resilience is being grateful, you know, expressing gratitude being grateful for what's actually good in your life and what's good in your work environment. And I'm, you know, I can think of, you know, 10 things that I'm grateful for each day, uh, workplace, family life, that just helps me uh, build confidence in myself, build resilience. So being grateful is a big part of uh, building resilience as well. Thank you, Anthony, for that advice. And I think it, all of it so rings true, you know, when you are in sometimes times of challenge, it's actually those times where you really understand what's important to you and to your family and treasure that. And I always think that, you know, talking more about using professional help when you need it, particularly when it comes to dealing with difficult times, is so important to sort of try and destigmatize it because it's quite ironic given we're in a professional service and we believe that we have a lot to offer as legal professionals, yet there seems to be in some areas, you know, resistance to use professional services when you do need it for other parts of your life. No, no I, I, like I said, I encourage, you know, if you spoke to me 15 years ago, it would be something that I would 
I would never consider for myself and, and probably I was in that, that negative group of people that uh, would say that there had to be something wrong with you to seek that sort of support. But, you know, having gone through what I've gone through and, and receiving that support, it would be something that I would in, encourage anyone uh, if they feel they need it. Now, I might change pace a bit and uh, move to some quick fire questions. So the plan with this is just tell me the first thing that comes into your mind, literally 10 seconds, and I'll move on to the next one, have a bit of fun, okay. and uh, let's see how we go. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question is, if you met your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give them? Chase your dreams. You know, chase what you're passionate about and uh, don't be fearful uh, of uh, what might lie ahead. Fantastic advice, I think, for any age. The next one is, what is one skill you've really had to develop through your in-house role? Uh, being flexible, being a, in a sense, master of all trades, you know, having a, a knowledge of uh, different aspects of law. Where do you go to upskill? I do a lot of CPD. I have great senior colleagues outside of uh, MIGA as well as inside of MIGA that I can tap into, but CPD is really important as well. Great. And who's someone you really admire? Wow. That's a really tough question. There's probably so many. Probably at this point I'd say my wife because she's just gone back to study and has, has committed and doing a wonderful job at that and I've great admiration for her at the moment. Very smart answer, Anthony. She's not she's not standing here either. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say it sounds like your wife's just played a really critical role, you know, in all of the key decisions you've made in life, as as it should be. Uh, so what's one item on your bucket list? Well I ticked that off actually. I I wanted to run a marathon and four years ago, four and a half years ago uh, as part of a fundraiser for the OMS charity, myself and 23 of my family and friends ran the New York Marathon and raised a, a significant amount of money for the, for the charity as well. So that was on my bucket list and I ticked that off. Very hard to top that. That is phenomenal. Not only you, but you've got 23 of your family members and friends. That I, I can't imagine uh, anything greater than that. Uh, what's your favourite hobby? Spending time with my kids at the moment, They're just watching them, they're teenagers now, and watching my son play soccer and, and my daughter do her dance performances, that's uh, that's my hobby. I, I enjoy catching up. I enjoy playing soccer myself. I don't play soccer anymore, but it was involved uh, for, for some time. But, yeah, that's that's my hobby these days. Fantastic. And I think for any of us uh, who have teenage kids, it's lucky that your hobby and their hobbies actually merge. Yeah. What, what are you reading at the moment? I tend to read. I, I'm not a, I've never been an avid reader, which is, which is funny coming from a, from a lawyer, but I read a lot of self-help books. I don't, I've never been interested in, in fiction, so I read a lot of non-fiction and self-help book biographies. I've just finished a book called 100 Greatest Speeches in Living Time and it's excerpts of some famous speeches from World War I, World War II through to current times and it was a fascinating read. Sounds amazing and uh, one for the book list for sure. And then finally, what's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? 
first thing I do is I meditate. Uh, I wake up and I spend 15 minutes uh, meditating. A big part of that is a, a gratitude meditation, being thankful for the small things in life. So that is the first thing I do and then followed by usually some form of exercise. I'm an early riser, so I'm up at 4.30, quarter to 5 every morning. And so I, I get all that out of the way before I begin my work day. What an inspirational way to finish our quickfire questions. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you so much for joining us on the show. You've spoken about resilience, the challenges that you've faced and some of the sort of turning points in your life. But I'd also like to add in that you've shown immense courage. And I think for all of us, as you say, you know, going through our own challenges, be they big, small, or somewhere in between, that courage that you've displayed and the clarity of thought around how to face those challenges, I think, are going to be inspirational for those that listen to this podcast. So thank you for joining us, Anthony. Thank you, May. I've had a really enjoyable time. I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. So thank you. You've been listening to In-House Insiders, a podcast about the stories, challenges and lessons learnt by Australia's top in-house legal professionals. In-House Insiders is produced by the Association of Corporate Counsel. ACC's purpose is to support the professional and business interests of in-house counsel through information, education, networking and advocacy initiatives. I've personally been an ACC member for 15 years and I continue to remain a member for the fantastic peer networking opportunities I get and the access to tailored CPDs that cater for every stage of an in-house lawyer's career. If you're not a member already, you can join me and over 45,000 other in-house counsel from around the world. For more information about ACC or to join, please visit the website acc.com. This has been In-House Insiders. I'm May Ramsey and I'll speak to you next time.